Welcome, party people, to the fourth episode of the fifth season of Law and Candor. Fourth episode of the fifth season. Insane. This podcast is wholly devoted to the pursuing the legal technology revolution, as you all know. I am Bill, and I'm here with my co-host, Rob, and we are excited to have you all here today. We want to get into the portion of the program that we know our listeners enjoy and we enjoy, uh, and that is the Sightings of Radical Brilliance. This is the portion of the program where we bring you the latest news of noteworthy innovation and acts of sheer genius. Rob, what do we have today? You know, Bill, sometimes our sightings are a little bit random and maybe don't connect with our uh, legal audience, but this one definitely will. This is about Relativity, which of course is a document review platform that I think everyone in our industry is at least familiar with and kind of a new use for it. Um, Again, you know, a lot of our sightings are focused on COVID related matters, of course. And in this one, you know, could relativity be used to sort and sift through tens of thousands of you know, medical journal articles on COVID and help sort of narrow that down into a more you know, relevant subset, depending on you know, like what the indication or the language involved would be? Yeah, we found this one on Above the Law, and it's how eDiscovery software is helping battle COVID-19. Pretty dramatic title, but you know, it, it's playing a role, right? And, and, and the article specifically uh, cites how uh, Maura Grossman and Gordon Cormack, two people that or you're probably familiar with if you're if you're an industry veteran, are using relativity to sift through large collections of discovery documents and helping medical staff more quickly search through massive databases of COVID-related clinical studies. It's kind of funny, you know, like I, I think if you asked a lot of, you know, attorneys in our industry, you know, how how comfortable are you with AI and how do you use that in your practice? You know, most would probably say they don't really use it. But these are tools that are embedded in platforms like Relativity. And I think seeing it used for a purpose that's slightly different, in this case, you know, kind of sifting down to relevant articles, is really pretty similar to what you do in a legal case. You know, you start with a lot of data. Yeah. And I think that, you know, in the hands of a seasoned pro and like, you know, like Mora and, and Gordon are, I mean, you know, to them, this is old hat, right? They're, they they are very familiar with Relativity. They're very familiar with e-discovery technology, obviously. But we were talking about this before the show where you talk, sometimes you'll hear about other industries completely unrelated to the legal technology industry and they'll say, well, we produced over a million documents or over a hundred thousand documents. And they, 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 see, they do this in the press to make it sound like a lot of data. Us in the e-discovery in- industry, we know that is not a lot of data. That said, there are applications that we use. There are technologies and functionalities that we use every day in our business that could be you know, put to other use. In this case, helping doctors and, and, uh, and, and researchers to sift through you know, tens of thousands of of pages of journal and clinical studies uh, to find the ones that are most relevant to uh, helping people to drive towards a cure with COVID. It's kind of funny, like, you know, I would never have guessed that there were over 52,000 COVID-19 articles already, but yeah. apparently there are. They were able to, to segment those by language, you know, by patient, you know, I think they were specifically looking for pediatric applications. But yeah, Good to see that our technology is impacting other fields and doing good. Yeah, I mean, it's it's nice to be associated with something good. I mean, I'm not doing anything, so it's nice to be associated with other people that are doing good. And I'm happy to at least be sort of related to it. So uh, nice job by uh, Maura and Cormac and, and Relativity in using uh, something that we all use every day in furtherance of this, uh, of helping to find a, a cure and study and research uh, COVID. Great. Fantastic. Well, on to the, uh, the meat of our podcast today, and I think this is going to be a fantastic one. We had the pleasure of bringing Nikki Woodfall of Traverse Smith to um, discuss uncovering effective strategies for managing DSARS. We hope you'll stay tuned and uh, listen to the interview.
Nikki, maybe just to get us started, could you give us a little bit of history about yourself? Anything interesting you want to share with our audience? Sure. Thank you so much for having me. Um, I'm Nikki Woodfall. I'm the e-disclosure, e-data manager at Travis Smith. Uh, I've been there now for just under three years, um, and, and we've been working alongside a, a variety of, of departments within Travis Smith itself. We are the technical team um, that support with disclosure, whether that be litigious, SARS, our most favourite things, and of course, other swapping and, and sharing of data and make, making sure that we're keeping within the practices that keep it safe, secure, but also um, defensible. And Nikki, just a couple of really important preliminary questions. One, maybe the most important is, I hear people say DSAR, and I see hear people say DSAR. Since you're the definitive expert on this, which one is correct? <laughs> Out. Um, I think it depends on who the client is and what they prefer to say. Um, the I've heard quite a variety of... <laughs> of um, SAR or CSARS as well, or D-E-S-A-R-S, D-E-E-S-E-R-S. Um, <laughs> there's certainly not a, a one-size-fits-all. And that goes back to pre-GDPR as well. I think everyone's got their own first. But I, th I, th I think if you're in a position that you're in, you can be the definitive word on this. Plus, anything said with an English <laughs> accent sounds better and sounds like it's the proper thing. So I think right now we could just put this all to bed and you could just decide what it's going to be. Yeah. <laughs> well, and that wasn't, you know, like the other important question was, is like Nikki, you know, from listening to the podcast that sometimes Bill makes fun of me, but it, he said <laughs> that DSAR actually stands for do something about Rob because there was a problem that I had with the EU. Is that, is there any truth to that? And again, I think the answer is it depends on the client. I will answer for Nikki here. Yeah, I think it yeah. depends um, on so, the, the law enforcement agency. Sure. <laughs> so, you know, let's call it DSARS for now. And and let's talk about, you know, the, the, the frequency with which we're starting to see this in the past few years. Nikki, in your opinion, why are we seeing more? I think first and foremost, it's that it was advertised. In, I would say pre-GDPR, um, one of the things that uh, DSART was used for is that there was this wonderful thing in, in particular in the UK with that you had to wait for the nominal check that was £10. The the awareness really of, of what a, a DSAR or a SAR subject access request really was for was less known then in the run-up to, um, to GDPR being in action, as it were, there was a lot of, not only in our industry, a discussion of that, but there was a lot of advertising for the different data regulatory protectors. And I suppose it became more of a tool of people understanding their electronic or digital footprint. People, I suppose, were more commonly aware of freedom of information requests. Um, and, and for journalists in particular, it's something that is, is used quite regularly. But for individuals and knowing their rights, I just don't think it was really something that somebody took action on. The other key part that I've certainly seen, and even more recently, is the fact that when people are going through times of trauma, or there are changes in the world or, or the system that they are part of. It's one of the points where Google becomes amazing to find out what somebody can and can't do against, whether it be their employer or somebody in which they have interacted with. And we don't all really understand what our legal obligations are, especially with 
data that we own. And most people don't really understand the fact that we own our own physical understanding, whether that be our name, date of birth and so forth. And it has become more of a practical objective issue for um, key consumers, both UK and, and internationally, of I'm traveling to Europe, so I want to know who's held onto my data and, and really what they're doing with it. But in particular, it really is the fact that the £10 check is just not there anymore. It's 30 days now instead of the glorious days of 40. And the fact that electronic data really is so much more part of our, our lives than it used to be. Nikki, you know that like here in the US, you know, we don't really understand concepts like privacy when it comes to our data. But for, for the rest of the world, you know, what are some of the top challenges that you're seeing when it comes to actually managing the DSAR process? Number one uh, that, that I've, I've had on a number of these is um, what constitutes personal data? So privacy of such is somebody actually understanding what should be kept private and in, in that effect, how they're doing so. So understanding that somebody's name is attached to them and effectively, if we give it like a key marker, that is their code, that is their, their, their reflection point on that you could identify them anywhere and everywhere. But because we quite openly parade ourselves, to put it nicely, on social media, including things like LinkedIn, Facebook, Snapchat, most wonderful thing ever, we openly give away our ability of, of privacy not really being there anymore. So the first thing is people actually understanding what's my personal data, not only the passport information, my telephone number, my email address. And that constituting of personal data is certainly what we have from a legal perspective, but also a technology perspective. The movement that I suppose we've seen in the last year or so is the fact that there's also so many data repositories for stars. And to go back to some of your earlier podcasts about chat data and internationally for different locations, the different requirements of collecting that data. And if it's not in a cloud uh, repository or, or have the ability to be able to collect it or, or access it from a cloud-based system. If you are then having to travel to said country, you've then got an additional challenge of time. Time is always against you under these certain points. You are trying to bring together the right people to access the data. You then have to collect the data and you have to actually make sure that you're allowed to get the data in the first place. Can I access somebody else's personal data? And if I am, do I need to tell them? Do I need to manage it a certain way? And the final big challenge, I suppose, that it affects all of us is security. We then have to transfer that data from one place to another. But what if there is already an underlying issue with the company that we're taking that data from or that we're taking it to? What if they are watching for, for these types of requests because they know it holds such tantalizing data somewhere within it that they can use for one reason or another? Ultimately, we are encapsulating when collecting all of this data and, and presenting it targeted very, very sensitive information that ultimately becomes this pot of gold for anybody that wants it. This sounds like a ridiculously complex balancing act. And it also reminds me why I will never apply for a job as a CISO in any large organization keeping data. 
in in your experience then with all of these balls in the air that we're trying to juggle to make sure that first we know what is private data then we know we can access it can we access it can we move it all of these different things that you're talking about in terms of challenges how, how do you even start to begin to overcome them how do you put a process in place to begin to overcome them step number one is always know your timeline so the original SAR or, or the request that will come come from the um, the original individual, it will state the day in which they're sending the letter. And then there is the process of actually acknowledging and agreeing the, the further steps, whether it be the fact that they have requested an awful amount of data. There will be a negotiation as to whether it is the provider of such will take the extended period of which can be up to two months. Keeping that whether it be on a whiteboard, whether it be reminders in your calendar, or whether it be a color-coded beautiful Excel that we certainly have, it doesn't matter. But you must always be aware of day one, that clock ticking starts very quickly. And you have to consider the process of getting the data with all of the checks within it, of actually moving it from country to country or, or from location to location, QCing it, processing it, then analyzing it and then doing actually all of the the work to isolate the information that you're actually looking for the personal data itself so that's big element there of timeline check when have you got to give that data over and what where are you working up to the next key one i would say is actually know your audience so what is the dsar a reaction to is it because there has been an issue with work is it in format of a grievance as an example Or is it because they genuinely want to know what data you hold on them? So understanding that in particular will allow you to format your end presentation of that information to them. Because, and hopefully, not everybody wants a thousand pages of PDF beautifulness with lots and lots of redactions all over it. They may want a spreadsheet that actually details their name, the email addresses that you have on record for them, the telephone numbers, et cetera, et cetera. And even if you're collecting geo tagging location on them, they'll want to know and they'll have a nice simple table for that. So definitely number two is what's the DSR in a reaction to. And the final point is when you're using technology, use the right one. And it may sound like a real a really simple one, but the technologies that we have access to, especially within the disclosure world now, are elaborate. So sentiment analysis is one I know that is um, discussed quite regularly, especially when it comes to SARS, for the fact that um, it's supposed to alleviate the, the struggle of searching through lots and lots of historic documents. But what if all of your hard copy scans? That might not work because it won't be able to OCR the documents correctly, or it might not OCR them correctly. Another point within that is that if you're collecting lots of email data that whether it be legacy or or even of a a newer cloud-based collection process you'll want to invoke those wonderful things like email threading and where possible put on all of the highlights that can be shown under the sun so that actually not only are you able to analyze that data fully but you're able to present it back to your review team super easily if you even need a review team and for without elaborating further into all of the parts of technology the administrative point of view of all of these um, these challenges, technology cost is, is always going to be associated with it. And you're always going to want to fit this into a tight time bracket and therefore cost racks up very, very quickly. So number one is timeline and check. 
Two, know what the DSR is in reaction to. And three, know your technology and choose your technology wisely. Just because that's the easiest way for you to simplify that process, make it repeatable and actually have an audit track that allows you to explain to the client what you've done the um the regulatory body body if you need to and importantly client um every step from the very beginning nikki just a practical question uh, you know a lot of our listeners know that bill spent a year backpacking through europe after college i know for a fact that he gave his phone number out to a lot of people during that time does he really have an expectation to privacy i mean can we just agree that 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 number is out there <laughs> i think forever and ever now and the problem, of course, is I have never changed that number. <laughs> so I still I still get people hanging up on the other side of the line. And my wife's starting to get really weird about it. But, you know, yeah. we're talking 20 years ago. Uh, oh, what am I saying? 36 years ago. Wow. <laughs> <laughs> Nikki, this has been great. Uh, maybe just to wrap up, you know, a few key takeaways. We're definitely seeing a, a big rise in the amount of DSARs. We think a lot of that's driven by, you know, just desire that people have to kind of know what their data footprint is out there. Some of the key challenges that um, companies are having to deal with is, you know, having to really put together a pretty complex response in a very limited amount of time. You know, having a process for that, you know, is key. Knowing your audience so that when you format that response, you know, it's appropriate to, you know, what drove the person's um, interest in, in knowing. And of course, keeping things like cost and, you know, using the right technology, you know, are, are key points as well. This has been a great session. There really is just a tremendous amount of interest in, in DSARS, you know, around here. And we really, really appreciate you coming on the podcast and taking the time to, to walk us through this. Uh, Nikki, I have to say, the I, I learned a lot on this podcast. I often do. And this one, I learned I learned quite a bit. Um, and I will be able to relay a lot of information to my clients. And and maybe most of all is that it is DSAR. We are calling it DSAR. And I will cite Nikki Woodfall as the uh, the person who actually just set in stone, uh, this is what we're calling it from this point forward. And so if anybody calls it anything else, I'm going to give them your number and your email address, both. I know private information, but I'm going to give them both and we'll just, we'll take it from there. You'll set them straight. We could probably just post that on the podcast. Yeah. Yes. Her phone number and her email. That's we should right. post that on the podcast. I think that'll write with the link. I think that'll be perfect. <laughs> and we'll say that like she prefers calls on Sundays. We'll put like underneath in the boilerplate. Nikki, thanks for doing this. We really appreciate it. Thanks so much, Nikki. Okay, guys, if you are a fan of this podcast, and I know absolutely all of you are, please hit the subscribe button, like it, smash it, throw something at it, make sure you subscribe. It really helps us out. Also, leave a comment. Love to hear your reviews. Uh, thanks a lot. Hope you're enjoying the program.